Well, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. This is our final episode of 2023. And to see out 2023, I had the privilege of speaking to Rosie Hopley. Rosie is based in Bristol, where for many years she ran her own communications, PR and research business. She also founded the Christian charity Beloved, which works with women in prostitution in Bristol. Rosie has since gone on to gather networks and prayer gatherings and more recently has been involved in speaking on and producing materials on the critical importance of God's reconciling love lived out. Rosie's example, her love for others, her compassion and her courage to step outside of her comfort zones and to invite and allow God to use her is remarkable. It was really inspiring to talk to her. I'm sure you're going to be blessed by this conversation. And before I hand over to my conversation with Rosie, I just want to let you know that last month, New Ground Churches, we held our leadership conference at Burgess Hill on the subject of the Holy Spirit, received, lived out, passed on. And all of the sermons and seminars and main stage sessions are now available to be listened to on our website. You can find them by going to newgroundchurches.org forward slash media. So I'd want to encourage you and invite you to head over to the website and invite God to speak to you afresh today. Perhaps something to enjoy over your Christmas break. Now, I love talking with Rosie and Rosie's example is a great reminder to me, right? Reminder to all of us, particularly this time of year with all the festivities going on. Her example is a reminder to remember the calling that's on us and the identity that's spoken over us as the people of God to be the light of the world. And we remember, of course, the coming of the light into the world on those who walked in darkness. On them a light has shone. But Jesus then turned it round, didn't he? And he said to his followers and he told them, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Now, Rose's example is an incredible story of how prayer, patience and courage combine together to bring huge blessing to others. It's also a reminder to us that we can offer hope and dignity to people in need. How about you this Christmas? What are you going to do? What about that neighbour who's a bit off with you? Or that public servant who works hard but whose work often goes unnoticed or unthanked in your community? How can we express God's generosity to others? Let's also be praying for all those people who are going to be attending carol services this time of year, who wouldn't ordinarily go to church, but will find themselves drawn to the light in this dark season, where they'll hear songs and sermons and testimonies and Bible readings about the incredible holy God who's drawn near to us in the person of his son. For now, over to my conversation with Rosie Hopley, and I shall be back in January with more conversations aimed at helping you thrive as a follower of Jesus, wherever you are and whatever you're going through. God bless. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, Rosie, there, there really is like lots that I'd love to kind of, I'm looking forward to talking to you about today from how you came to faith, um, teaching that you've given on lament, um, turning love into action, some of your thoughts on that, the MA in African theology that you are, God willing, going to be finishing in July, and um, and Gorilla Cupcakes. I'd love to learn more about Gorilla Cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think before we get to any of that, why don't you just share with us um, perhaps something that you've learned or reflected on recently, something that God's taught you either about yourself or leadership. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I've been thinking quite a bit about leadership in recent weeks, partly um, prompted by uh, an event that I did a couple of weeks ago with Jubilee Plus for Jubilee Plus Voices, where I'd be working with people who are living on the lowest incomes um, and just asking them, um, you know, can you speak up into things um, that you would like the wider church to know? From your perspective, you know, what do you see? What do you think about church? What do you think about social action projects? And the reason I was thinking about leadership in that context is because it was a brilliant day. But I've often thought, actually, well, the best people I think who can speak up about that are those who actually are living it or have recent lived experience of it. So it's a really good day. I'm just kind of in the midst of um, kind of writing up a report um, that um, I issue after each time I do one of these. Um, and you, you know, see on Jubilee Plus, um, Jubilee Plus website. But I recognise that 
leadership in that context can look different to leadership in different contexts. And I was then reflecting on, a, on an away day that I held last year with a small group of church leaders in Bristol to review these course materials that I've written for the Reconciled Church. So this is another piece of work that I've been doing. And that was for an assignment for the MA. It was, it was a leadership assignment and, and I had to write a theological reflection. And it made me realise when I contrasted that away day with these leaders, with my time with these brilliant group of people um, a couple of weeks ago, that they were very, very different days. And I concluded that sometimes we get different snapshots of our leadership. And I think what I took from that was that context is huge. Who is in the room is more important than we might think and why and what you are leading people to is also really important. And it was just, it was just, you know, a funny little reflection that I made, kind of comparing and contrasting, but actually also the costs of leadership as well, that, you know, kind of certain environments may, may, may actually be very costly compared to other environments. And I think that's really good for church leaders to think about or ministry leaders to think about. I think we just think leadership is leadership is leadership, but context is huge. Who's in the room is huge. Say a bit more about what do you mean by the cost that's involved with leadership in different settings? I mean, I was thinking earlier today about how, you know, obviously we've kind of come through the pandemic and we're kind of in that post-pandemic kind of landscape now and how we're often hearing, you know, kind of, People are tired, they're they're exhausted, um, and how we can't, we cannot lead well, I don't think, unless we keep on coming back to the shepherd who leads us. I think you can get away with leading things for a time. (laughs) You can get away with it because people are very gifted skilled and all kinds of things but I think when people are trying to lead out of their own strength it can actually you know have a, a hard kind of impact on us I was listening to Tepe Colioso he he was one of the keynote speakers um, uh, at the Jubilee Plus conference and he said something really interesting and I'm going to paraphrase it but it was something along the lines of um, God wants us to burn brightly and not to burn out and I thought it was absolutely right that um, I think kind of whatever whatever scenario we are in, you know, kind of uh, we're giving out, aren't we? We're sharing love, we're, we're, we're supporting, we're, we're helping to disciple people that we're alongside. But unless we are receiving from God, we'll find ourselves getting very, very depleted very quickly. And I just think, Lord... It, you know, how, how are shepherds, the under-shepherds, how are they being shepherded? That's really helpful. And this does seem to come up a lot at the moment, the importance of um, people looking after themselves spiritually, staying close to the shepherd. I mean, you mentioned COVID. I think of when, when COVID broke. It's interesting, isn't it? Like those who were in pastoral leadership or leadership in some setting, the news broke, everything changed for the scenario that they were leading and, and they quickly went into, or a lot of us quickly went into, okay, here's what we're going to do mode, um, which is a, an appropriate, if you like, use of just their gift to you know build stuff out of rubble and to put things together. But it was such a confusing time that it, you could really only lead from that posture for so long. It was actually pastors and people, anyone in leadership needed to make sure they were almost being honest with saying, I'm scared as well. Like, I don't know what's happening. I'm not the one who has the answers here. And sometimes as leaders, we want to present as, oh, it's okay. We'll we'll, we'll make this fine. Whereas I was talking to someone for this podcast recently who talked about the importance of the death and resurrection motif, even for just the way the spirit answers our prayers, that we're to lean into those challenges and say, look, I don't know. I'm suffering too. I'm struggling too. Let's trust God together. Um, but it does, it does seem to be something that is coming up quite often, the need for the cost of it and the need for pastors or people in leadership to look after their, their own spiritual health. It's like a, a modern way of putting it. But like Jesus said, abide in me, the importance of abiding in Christ. Exactly. Exactly. I kept on coming back to Psalm 27. That has been my life psalm from when I was 
literally 19 and started following Jesus and I and I love that whole thing of you know kind of uh, where the psalmist talks about being you know be strong um, and but wait for the Lord and, and having confidence in him and I had a really strong sense of that as we were you know um, kind of in the certainly in the first few months of the pandemic and yet um, I also knew, knew that there was a tension because in in such a chaotic situation, leaders often move into command and control style of leadership. You look at, you, you know, because I knew, I thought, well, Lord, the, the tools and the things that we have been doing in Beloved now no longer work because all of the parlours are closed. <laughs> we couldn't get in to see the women. And it's not, well, now what? Now what do we do? And so we had to flex very, very quickly. And we we did, and the team were brilliant, and you know we we maintained contact with the women, and we kind of switched to kind of doing kind of Zoom kind of gatherings with women, and um, you know it was amazing. But I also recognised well that will only last for a season because we're into some uncharted territory now. And yeah, so you know I I, I think it's it's really good actually where people can be a bit more transparent and, and honest. But I sometimes just think we we make it hard for leaders to do that, uh, which I think is really sad. You know, we're all, everybody's human being. Well, I think as leaders, we put those, we sometimes put those pressures on ourselves as well, don't we? Because we we're we're meeting an insecurity within ourselves that we want to look like the ever competent ones, uh, or the ones that people can depend on to have the answers. Um, so, um, here's a, here's a question then: what what are some of the things that you observe in your own soul or life that are some of the biggest hindrances to your own spiritual health um, as a leader? Um, okay, so I think um, at, at one point I described myself as a functional workaholic. I think I was taking that, you know, that good old Protestant work ethic <laughs> and um, leaning into that. But I find that I have to resist that as well, because how otherwise do I abide? And the thing is, you know, if you if you work yourself into the ground, you will stop eventually because, you, you know, because things will catch up with you. But I like, you know, I don't think that's God's kind of call for us. And so so for me, um, I've had to really be um, examining my practices and um you know, and gosh, you know, if if I'm sending an email at five o'clock or six in the morning, why am I doing that? <laughs> I have been known to do that. <laughs> now I know, you know, kind of some people are wired differently and they're they're early birds and all the rest of it, but I think that there is such a subtle pressure to be on all the time. And we we've got to resist it. We really, really do. And so I think for me, I have to resist it. Um, now, of course, you can go the other way, <laughs> and it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything, and you can't do that. You know, God has prepared good works for us. You know, He's He's given gifts that He wraps up in people of all kinds of you know groupings and backgrounds for for the building up of the church, and so we we must attend to those as well, um, because they're they're gifts that He has given. Um, and they come from, you know, God who is good. And it's up to us to share that. So it's it's finding that right, that right balance and that right rhythm. And so I, I think these days I try to hold things more lightly and more open-handedly in my in my hands. Mm. Well, something you mentioned there, uh, the charity beloved. I'd love to come on actually and, and talk a bit about your leadership in practice um, and the charity that you set up working with women in prostitution in Bristol. Um, but subsequently read as well your article about it that you released in the Women Alive uh, publication, um, where you mentioned that I think around, uh, even as a youngster growing up in Leeds, you saw women working in prostitution and it had 
an impact on you, something you could remember such that years later you set up this charity. At what stage in your life did these kind of formative experiences and things that you saw in the world plant seeds that God has then produced in ministry and leadership for you later? That's maybe kind of just a, a bigger reflection. I'd love to get your thoughts on how God does that in our lives um, as we kind of come to talk about the work of Beloved. So I don't know where you want to start with unpacking some of those thoughts. Um, okay, so I think... Um something that I've looked back on is how even even before we begin to follow God, you know, I didn't I didn't stop running away from God until I was 19. <laughs> I can't so I went through, you know, I was kind of raised in the Catholic faith, schools, you know, kind of all the rest of it. Um, but definitely kind of went kind of on pretty full-on rebellion in my teenage years um was that in part was that sorry was that in part because I know you mentioned in the article that your mum died when you were eight I believe no That's, no so, so she died she died when I was less than one um oh but I but when I was about eight <clears throat> and yeah because I think I wrote about that in the article I think that was the first prayer I can remember asking God why did you let my mum die? I haven't got an answer. <laughs> you know, we talk about these prayers where sometimes it's a yes or a no or a silence. I don't have an answer. Um, but in the midst of where we were growing up, um, you know, kind of uh, the area was a very mixed, mixed area. And, um, and as I say, we were kind of being raised in the Catholic faith, but I, yeah, I just, you know, basically stuck my two fingers up to that when I was a teenager, <laughs> was not having it. Um, and then interestingly enough, we had some Jehovah's Witnesses that came around to our house and me and my one and one of my siblings, we, you know, I mean, there was a lovely young woman. She was so lovely, very gentle. Um, she came and studied with us for a year, a whole year, right? And then they invited me to church, their church gathering. And so I said yes. And I remember um, they were having, I guess, what they would call Holy Communion um, or breaking bread or what have you. But only certain people could have it. And it was explained to me that only people who were in the 144,000 that would go to heaven could have it. And I just knew, <laughs> I just thought, that ain't right. I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that God would limit heaven to that number of people. I think his love is bigger than that. I think his mercy is bigger than that. So even though I wasn't a follower of Jesus, <laughs> I knew something within me that, God was bigger than this. And, and and at that point, it's like, yeah, I'm not interested anymore. Um, and, but also at the time, you know, there's all the stuff kind of going on around us in Leeds. So for a time, it was a very, it was very frightening because uh, the uh, Yorkshire Ripper was uh, murdering kind of women and girls, several of whom their bodies were found not very far from where we lived and um yeah so you know kind of I remember kind of you know if I went out for a walk or what have you you know you took the dog with you um yeah you just had to be really shrewd um with what you were doing and and I also remember feeling very frightened for the women who were working kind of street corners not far from where we lived and actually getting to chat with them and asking them, you know, because as a kid, you are, you know, well, I was curious, but I was frightened for them as well. And so I began to hear a little bit of some of their stories. And I, honestly, I think I, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11, maybe I was at this point. My dad would, would have gone absolutely nuts if he'd known what I was doing. Um, but I think I knew at that point, I thought, oh gosh, I think I better stop this. It's, you know, I just better be a bit careful. And so, I, um, but I think God, 
had planted something in me, even from as a child, a compassion and uh, a concern for women. Um, and so many, many years later, that then kind of came into being. I was able to volunteer with one local charity that was working with women who were selling sex on the streets. And I'd been doing that for a little while. And then absolutely out of the blue, I then got this. Well, I heard, I heard this kind of, it was a prophetic, I believe it was a prophetic word because I'd been working as a copywriter and a writer. Often the way that I believe I hear from God is I get phrases. And I'd had this phrase, hear and do, and I didn't know what it meant, sat on it for a year. And then I was at, um, I was actually at Soul Survivor. I'd gone with our youth and um, heard somebody speaking about a ministry um, of going into parlours and, and brothels and something just ignited. And I thought, I have to find out more. So I elbowed my way to the front through thousands of teenagers. <laughs> and this is not like me, you know, not like me at all. And I ended up speaking with a woman who, a lady called Daniel Strickland, and I just talked to her for a few minutes. And then after that, it, it seemed that everything that I read, everything that I heard all seemed to be about women who were working in indoors prostitution. And I just began, my heart just began to break. And I then realized, I thought, oh, this here and do, I think, I think, God, you'll give me a nudge to do something with women in indoors prostitution. So I spent about six months researching, sought out other ministries to talk to the people who had founded those or led those to ask them, is there anything that they could pass on any wisdom and so on what were the most important things and everybody came back and said you must pray and I thought okay well, we will definitely pray and shared it with my husband Nigel and um, some kind of friends and church leaders and in the end I decided okay let's honest but I also spoke with the police as well because um, I thought it was important that the police knew um, and it wasn't like I was contacting them to ask for permission because I thought I'm not asking you for permission. I, I just have a sense that God is telling me this. You know, I phrase it in a particular way because they would have thought I was an absolute, I don't know what they would have thought. But um I but what I did do was I thought, well, let's try it for six months. Let's just try it as a pilot. My faith was so small, but I felt compelled by the love of God to go. And we had a very small group of us, there were seven of us as volunteers, um, you know, kind of three wonderful students that packed up some little goodie bags for us, some little, we did some little cupcake things. And, um, and then there were four of us in the car. Um, and I'd already kind of researched where the premises were very, very carefully because I thought, oh, gosh, we can't turn up somewhere thinking it's a brothel, and it's not. So we were extremely careful. You know, we made sure that the places that were we were visiting really were what we thought they were. And, and then we had a driver, we had a prayer partner, and then two of us, two women as, as visitors. And we just knocked on doors. And we, and, oh, and also just to say, we, for about two, three months beforehand, we prayer walked. We prayer walked every parlour, just very discreetly, very subtly, because I knew, I thought, I need to get people out. We needed to get out and spy out the land. <laughs> and I thought, we just need to get people out there. I thought, you know, I thought, I know I'm I'm used to have being in an area where there's prostitution, sex trade or sex work. And, you know, we can talk about the language later, maybe. Um, but maybe others weren't, wouldn't be so familiar with it. And um, and then after prayer walking, we just knocked on doors and it was amazing. We got invited. I think we we called by five parlours that first evening. We just introduced ourselves very simply, who we were. We said we're local people from local churches. We'd love to come by and visit with their permission if they would like us to. And we'd love to just listen. And if anybody wants prayer, we would love to pray together. 
and that was it. And I think because we asked in a very respectful way, and um, and women received us. It was it was absolutely amazing. Not in every parlour. First three did. The other two, the women were very frightened and seemed quite shut down. But eventually, over a period of years, we got into 16 commercial parlours across the city, which is amazing. And now that work is led by a new team, you know, a new leadership team, and um, they continue to do phenomenal, phenomenal yeah. work with the women. I mean, those first initial visits must have been <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the courage, yeah. I guess, that would have been required to to step into an environment that's entirely alien, potentially hostile. I mean, were you nervous of the people who, who ran those houses getting in trouble with them? Yeah, yeah, we we were thinking of all of that. <laughs> and uh, um, but and I and I remember actually talking with a, a local vicar and uh and she was asking me about similar things, you know, kind of you know going and how did you deal with the fear and all the rest of it. And there were a couple of things. Um, you know, when I look back to kind of my journaling and the notes that I was making through, um, as I was reading through scripture. All around that time, it was it just seemed to be that God just kept on speaking to me through, you know, say the stories of Joshua and others where he was, where he was saying, I will make you brave. I will make you brave. I thought, well, OK, Lord, you take my fear and I will receive the bravery that you give to me and to the team and we will go. And um, and also we prayed, Lord, don't let us meet people in there that we are not to meet without your permission. So whether it's the owners, whether it's potentially traffickers, whoever it might be, we trust, Lord, that you go before us. And so we went really trusting God with that. And he did make he did make us brave, but but not in a way that was real bravado or anything like that. I think we just kind of came with a very gentle, uh, disarming love and... Um, and with cupcakes and you know that so it made me laugh because I remember talking with um somebody who led a, a national kind of um she was leading kind of a homeless um kind of charity the work in Bristol and um it was a secular charity and we were talking about homelessness because we knew that was something that really impacted some of the women that we were working with and she, she said to me, Rosie, I love, she said, you know, the work that you do, she said, I call it gorilla cupcaking. <laughs> and it's because we would take in the most exquisite cupcakes. We had teams of bakers who would bake cupcakes. And, you know, and we knew they would pray over them and then they would deliver them to us. And then we'd package them all up into goodie bags and get them ready to give to the women. And um, and it was almost like we were kind of doing stuff under the radar. And I think when you come alongside people with love and not and not with an agenda, it wasn't like we come with an agenda, you know, we want to yank you out of the par or what have you. It's like, no, we understood. There were all kinds of reasons why women were there. And it was very complex, very complex. And we certainly, you know, desire to see transformation and change in women's lives but actually most of all I thought you know if they can get even a glimpse of how God loves them and how people are for them um you know that's that's the start of a or first step of who knows what God might lead people into oh that's incredible absolutely incredible wow I mean you mentioned that you got into 16 homes which um to me sounds like a lot uh, so it kind of makes me want to wonder about the question like how how prolific an issue is this in the UK how many people are in the I guess mm. you call it sex industry or prostitution yeah so um I think different places have different different expressions of the scene as it were I think Bristol did actually have a lot of parlours certainly had um you know kind of there was work that was done by kind of um kind of anti-trafficking agencies as well where you know they 
they thought there were loads more places that were pop-up parlours, um, not commercial ones. So the ones we went to were the commercial ones, but the places that actually advertised. Um, and so, so, you know, they would be kind of like shop front places, you know, um, kind of on high streets or... Um, Is it not illegal to do that? Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? So, um, so from from a legality point of view, if you've got two or more people actually who are you know who kind of come together, kind of with an agreement to sell sex, that is illegal. Um, but um, I think it's a very grey area in the UK in terms of how it's policed, how the legislation around it. Well, the legislation is clear, but how how that then is enacted. Um, you know, I, I think the police, the you know, certainly kind of from what we could see, we're, we're really trying to work with compassion and with um, real forethought in the way that they worked with women and certainly, you know, very, very attuned to where there might be trafficking and exploitation happening as well. You know, we found that they were extremely responsive whenever we had concerns about particular situations. Um, and but you know our our reason well from my point of view was we were there to share the love of God with the women that that was and I think it was always really important to remember that that's why we were there that's why we were going and um, now I know you know kind of the whole debate around kind of prostitution or the sex trade or so on you know it's it's very contentious and I think you know, I'm really fascinated in language and how language is used. And I think it's because I love writing and I, you know, I earned my living writing. And I find it very interesting how words are used and, you know, the language of sex work, because I rarely heard women use that term. And I met a lot of women over the years. And I thought, well, if they're not using it, then why is it always been framed in that way in the media? Or by those who, now I know actually you've also got very, you know, you've got uh, lobbying groups and I understand, you know, kind of, they'll have particular interests in things as well. Um, so, you know, I, I thought, I think you just have to be very shrewd with these things. I read Louise Perry's book on the impact of the sexual revolution and she comments on this language dynamic that, you know, there's sex work is real work. There's articles that uh, people write in the media to try to promote that as a, a thing. It was she, her conclusion, she, she quotes some people saying that the people who are saying these things, that sex work is real work, she, she says they're often middle-class voices who are like tourists in the industry. They, they may have a, a, an expression of sex work in their life, but it's, they're, they're doing it so from a position of uh, financial stability and security already. They're not depending upon it. They're able to leave whenever they want at any moment, which of course represents, she, so that's why she calls them tourists, because she says they represent such a tiny percentage of the people who are actually involved in prostitution, the majority of whom, like you said, their situation is far more complex and very rarely uh, is it sort of the sort of thing that a woman enters into as a career choice because she you know really wants to do it so so to speak yeah you know I knew we knew actually that for many of the women we met there were sad stories involved and um you know and I thought well certainly when I was growing up you know I thought I can't I couldn't think of many 13 14 15 year olds who thought oh I know what I want to do one day and I want to kind of work in a parlor or a raffle or I want to sell sex on the corner of a street and I want to be a sex worker I didn't meet anybody who met that criteria, not a single one. And so I would question, in whose interests is it? Who gains? Who gains financially from those who would put forward that argument? Because I think we need to get a little bit more curious about this and a bit more shrewd, but that's my, that's my view. Um, who does gain? Who would you say gains? Sorry, you're saying rich men. Well, you know, kind of, you know, you say, look at, there are, you know, kind of pornography sites online and just the amount of money that they will be raking in 
and wrecking girls' lives and women's lives and people's lives for the sake of money. And um, and so, you know, well, they'll certainly be gaining kind of financially from it. And, um, and that's why I think, you know, people have to be really shrewd about these things. Um, and... And also, you know, just seeing the long-term impact on women who've been in the industry or the trade for a very, very long time. Because I remember there was, a, there was a really excellent documentary. I think it was a Channel 4 one where they were following a group of women who were working in, I think they were actually all working in indoors in various guises. And, oh my gosh, I mean, there was one woman who was just heartbreaking. And I think she was probably in her 70s, right? And I thought, my gosh, you know, that's an age where, you know, you want to be surrounded by your children, your grandchildren, and it was her birthday. And, you know, and just her experience of, you know, they filmed her on her birthday. And I, I it, and then they, they also showed somebody who, you know, was, she was in a shop and it was coming up to Valentine's Day and she was looking at the Valentine's cards and, you know, you could see there's a real longing in her that, you know, she wanted to receive one. And I thought, this is actually what really enrages me about the trade because it, it sets people up to consume something of one another. And yet they're paying a very, very great price. It comes at a very great cost. And I think who who's going to be there for those women in their fifties, sixties, and seventies? Now, who who's going to do that? Because it won't be the bloke who walks in and books somebody for an hour. It'll it'll be long gone. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It is, and you know, and I think you know this. Now you know I kind of, you know, Jesus said you'll always have the poor with you, and I I understand that. Um, and I know that kind of for, for some people, poverty can, you know, and uh, lack of opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's all very complex. It can be all kinds of reasons why people um, kind of get drawn into the trade and, and so on. Um, but I just think, you know what, if we were a society that cared for one another and loved one another and really took seriously this notion of looking after your neighbour, and yeah, you know, I, I I just think that would make it a much more hostile environment where you can get flourishing of prostitution. I, I just think we wouldn't mm. we wouldn't put up with it. We wouldn't put up with it. I, mean, I guess there's so many factors involved in um, what's led to the led to the situation we're in as a society i know we've spoken a bit before together about uh, you, your concerns about the impact of the the sexual revolution on women um mm. i also think of i was talking with someone just yesterday about um just the impact of what, what they called the the greek heresy where they said it's funny that jesus talked about the great commission we've been influenced by the greek commission which is a separation of body and soul and the way that people relate to and think about the body which plays into this conversation because they think I can just sell sex. It's just a thing. Oh, they can just sell sex. It's the thing they do with their body and their yeah. soul is untouched. Yeah. Um, trying to dissect the the human person. And as you described there with some of those people, like there's a hollowing out of the, the whole person that goes on and a, an emptying of their, their deep joys and loves in life as a result of being mistreated, although they might say just with their body uh, mistreated. Um, so I know in the conversation around language, I suppose one one argument for not using the term prostitute a friend was talking to me about was it, it's a very dehumanizing term potentially it yeah. robs anybody of their identity it just labels them as as a criminal uh, or someone who's um, uh, that we should be suspicious of and she was saying to me that this is reflected in our law where the, the person selling sex is um, liable to be prosecuted just as much as the person buying the sex um, which is different to how, say, in Sweden it's different. Um, Sweden, in law, describes prostitution um, as being an act of gender... Sorry, prostitution is an act of male violence. 
um, against girls and um, against women and girls, women and children. And that just that that seems to be a much more honest and accurate description that it is an act, always an act of violence, even if the woman is so-called consenting to it. So I don't know, I'd like to get some of your reflections on the language of prostitutes. Interesting that they would, the ladies that you met would call themselves prostitutes. Um, well, I wouldn't, no, I, they, what I would say is that they were, they were not likely to refer to themselves as sex workers. Okay. And what we would do and what I would do is I, I would just call the women women. They're women. That was a great leveler. We were women that went into the parlours. They were women working in the parlours. You know, some of us might be mothers, aunts. You know, we're, we've got hobbies. We're interested in this, that and the other. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't use the language of calling somebody a prostitute. But I also do think that we do have to be honest as well about the reality of things and the, and the reality of what people are doing um and um but yeah you know you'd want to be kind of really sensitive to women you know gosh my, you know, we knew actually for many people you know they were having a bad enough day as it was anyway you know gosh you don't want somebody who's going to come in and you know has got a point to prove or what have you that's not love that isn't love. <laughs> so we weren't going to do that. And we, you know, I know I wouldn't do that. We worked with the women and then when we got to know people, we knew their names and they knew our names. That's a much better way of going about this. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> but but I do think it's, you know, going back to what you were saying about um it being about violence against people. Um I think there's all kinds of things going on there. There's violence, there's privilege, there's um there's there's lust. Yeah, let's let's call it for what it is. There's lust. There's also loneliness as well, you know, kind of um I think we, we have to be truthful about about these things. Um and what I find sad is that there's just you know, this all kind of like happens within the framework of such separation between men and women. Um within the world and uh, which is why I think you know Lord what you have been doing and are doing and are calling us to be in the church and forming us into one new humanity you know neither male nor female neither slave nor free neither Jew nor Gentile what does that actually mean how do we actually work that out in the church how do we join in with the works that he has prepared for us and I loved you know that as team in beloved you know I knew we needed men involved in that work you know we had men who were drivers there were, there were you know men who kind of would pray um because we knew that this is an issue and that actually affects all of us it's not just one group it affects all of us and therefore it's going to take all of us actually to to do something about it um you know and i i don't know i just i do wonder you know if men maybe if men understood more uh, the impact that it has on people that it isn't just a transaction i don't know would it make a difference maybe i, I don't know well it's part of the it's part of the lie attached to the sexual revolution um again i read earlier uh, that so someone said if if the scientific revolution disenchanted the world then the sexual revolution has disenchanted sex it has tried to convince us that sex is just an exchange between two people and that as a result is just just like you said it's put it's put massive distance between men and women and it has taught us to try to to treat one another as commodities or to just break us down into you know component parts of our bo bodily features etc and that's just so dehumanising, ultimately, depersonalising, it's destructive to our humanity. Uh, and it is borne out, probably, in a society like ours that's just so hyper-individualised, we, we don't bear the cost of this as a community at all, because it happens away from um, 
prying eyes or even anyone who knows about it or knows about us and our situation. So just as you might say, no woman grows up wanting to do this work. No man grows up really thinking, I'd love to go pay for sex one day as, a, as an adult to satisfy a, a need for love or lust that I have. I think it's dehumanising of the male as well. But he's been trained to think you're just a man. That's what you do. Men need to have these fixes. And it's it's just devastating it is and i you know i so i did earlier this year i did a talk on um the impact of the sexual revolution on women but um but i almost wish actually that i could have broadened it out or we could have had even more sessions to look at the impact on men and the impact on children because it doesn't just have an impact on women it has an impact on all of us and um and i you know I think kind of like certainly the the downsides of the sexual revolution and and hear me in this actually I think actually with some things that were spoken about more openly you know helping say kind of women and girls understand more about their bodies and preparing them for marriage or or whatever it might be um or you know kind of going through puberty or what have you those were probably actually quite good things um you know because it's a natural process that people go through and um, and I think we need to help people and children feel less frightened of it. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful um, emerging of, of people from childhood into adulthood. And it's, you know, it's your body preparing you for, for what life may come. You know, not, I know not everybody is necessarily going to... Um, bear children but for those that do you know it's, it's part of that process or for for boys you know it's preparing you you know for becoming a man and um and I think we need to probably speak more into those things in a way that speaks of the beauty of it and to take the fear out of it and um because I think there is so much fear around and I think that is partly what is getting hijacked at the moment. Mm. That's interesting. I think um, Jean Twenge's book on, gener on the generations, on, on the current generation, she observes that young people are having less sex than ever before, non just in society, but that more more young people are engaged in watching pornography and that when they do come together in sex, a lot more girls than before are reporting uh, that, that their boyfriends are are mistreating them or performing acts of violence against them trying to strangle them as a result of the things that they're seeing in pornography so no wonder it's already a a, a scary prospect for for people for having sex with someone for the first time and if you're now thinking i'm worried that they're going to try to strangle me um it, it's it's really desperate <laughs> desperately sad it is and you know and, I, and therefore i think actually well you know while people might feel a bit embarrassed and what have you i think actually we, we need to we need to find ways to speak into it. And, you know, obviously there are kind of resources out there and organisations from a Christian perspective that maybe that do that. But uh, but I do think actually we probably need to up our game. And also, you know, so one of the things, I mean, kind of switching track a little bit, but thinking about um, the Reconciled Church and, and the course that I've written, the Reconciled course. So one of the sessions that we do is we talk about image. And we take we talk about whose image are we made in? Well, male and female, God created them in his image. And um, and I think the fact that uh, we have distanced ourselves from really believing that, you know, and if we if we really took that seriously, the person in front of me is made in the image of God, would I dare? to dehumanise them. Don't think it would certainly give us pause. You know, in terms of even our relations as men and women in, in church, if we really sat with the truth of that, it's a colossal truth. I think it would really impact the way we treat one another. And, you know, or even say when we're in disagreement with one another or we don't see each other as well as we would hope to just kind of coming back to lord what do you say about this person and i think that for me was you know when i'd go into a parlor that would be something that I'd, I'd think lord help me to see the women as you see them it's a very big ask of a prayer i know i can't see 
somebody quite as God sees them because God is God and I'm me. <laughs> but if he can give me even a glimpse of something of how he sees that person, that helps me in the way that I can love them. And likewise, I think just in terms of how, you know, we see each other, whether we're from different ethnicities, different social backgrounds, male or female, just sitting with that, Lord, we are made in your image. Um, wow, that would, you know, and I think that's a basic disciple. I think that's a basic discipleship thing, to be perfectly honest. Well, it, you know, maturity for the Christian looks like love, and love means being other-oriented or other-centred rather than self-centred. And I think often when we when we meet people, whenever we're interacting with someone, if we're honest, or certainly maybe it's just me, I'm hoping if, if it's a general thing, if I'm honest... I spend most of my time when I meet someone wondering and worrying about how they're perceiving me, you know, how I'm coming across and what they're thinking of me, which isn't loving, that's anxious. And uh, that can lead to that can lead to me keeping my guard up. It can lead to me making snap judgments about people. It can lead to me being suspicious of another person, maybe even dehumanizing them or labeling them in a category that makes me feel safe, like as though I understand them or you're this kind of person. Whereas the prayer that you prayed is actually it's a it's a remarkably incredibly rather loving prayer and it's what we also almost all need to aspire to i want to see these people in their context based on their background their situation their pe peculiar and particular things that they've gone through in their lives so that i can love them as a individual human being as god in heaven loves them without worrying about what they're perceiving me to be all the time you know, I think often it's fixation and concern with self that just leads to the rising rates in anxiety, whereas love being other oriented empowers us to put another person first, which leads to them feeling dignified, which then leads to them actually being able to reciprocate the love that you've shown them, which builds to love and trust and friendship and community. I don't know, just the importance of love. I think it's a great prayer, something we should all be praying. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is a really good. It's such a good prayer. <laughs> yeah. So I know that's, that's obviously that's something that you've said before is, is um, close to your heart as well. This idea of get, you mentioned it at the start with the the kind of um, what was the word you used for it? Like uh, the consultation, if you like, with, at the Jubilee Plus conference. This idea of giving people voices or giving voices to people, listening to other people's voices. Um, why don't you just share with us a bit about that your your passion to and how you go about doing that how did you give these women that you worked with voices um and how empowering or enabling dignifying rather that is um so one one of the ways that we did that was um i and others in the team actually you know we particularly with women that we built up a relationship and trust um and you know, where we, because we would often actually meet with women outside of the parlours. So, you know, we'd be, we'd be careful and uh, around where we would have certain kind of conversations. Um, but having kind of built up relationship with, with people, um, I mean, one of the things that I did was I, I set up an advisory group in Beloved for women with experience of having worked um, kind of in, in the industry, but then they'd subsequently come out. And we wanted to just learn from them. And, and actually, even before we did that, there were, there were particular women who were incredibly helpful that were sharing, you know, kind of just some of their knowledge and experience with me. And, and it just helps me to address some of the blind spots because I recognise, you know, there'll be all... I, I don't understand, I, you know, because that's not been my experience. I might have been, you know, relatively adjacent to some things when I was growing up but that was a long time ago and I and that was not my direct experience and and if anything actually I think where people think that they've got the experience it can make us quite dangerous um because then you speak into things and speak on behalf of things that actually probably don't I think have the authority to do that so I'll just put that out there <laughs> and so I I was very keen to hear from women um you know well tell us what you think you know we've got this idea what do you reckon and sometimes they're being crazy well, you know, and, and the fact that we had relationship meant that they could actually say no i don't you know, mm, really and i thought okay bad idea <laughs> because you know because sometimes in our enthusiasm we can think, i know what let's do this but enthusiasm 
while it's lovely, can also be misplaced. And um, so I knew that we had to be very careful with that. And also because there is a power dynamic as well. And just being aware of that power dynamic, you know, we knew or I knew kind of every time I go to a parlor, I'm going to walk away at the end of that visit. And I might not see that woman maybe for a month. I might not see her again. I don't know. Um, and so I found it incredibly invaluable where there were some incredibly helpful women who did um, help us to understand some things. And, um, and I remember I did, uh, I held an away day. Um, so I would, do an, I would do a regular away day for our team. And also I do an away day with our board of trustees as well. And at one of the, at one of these away days, uh, we invited our advisory group to come in. Um, and well, actually we, we, yeah, we'd, we'd kind of like gone, gone away, um, me and some of the team with, with our advisory group. And then in fact, we invited the board to come in and meet with us. And I did that very deliberately. I was upending the power dynamics because I was very conscious of it. And I knew people would be nervous. So I thought, right, you know, let's just be aware of these things. And the way that these women spoke into a couple of issues that we were particularly interested in looking at, which one was housing and one was kind of employment, you know, what does, what does a pathway out of the work look like? for anybody who has got to that point where they think, I don't want to be in the trade anymore, right? I want to do something different. So what does training and employment and development look like? And they spoke brilliantly into that. And so I took part of that principle into something that then I've been doing with Jubilee Plus, which is the Jubilee Plus Voices. And I've talked with Natalie Williams, who leads Jubilee Plus. And together we kind of came up with this, with it's a two year project, so it kind of finishes in the summer, um, where I've been going around different parts of the country and gathering groups of people with lived experience of low income and poverty to speak into issues to do with poverty. And, and you know, I'll be really honest actually, Judge, you know, there are times I, f I, f I do feel a bit nervous about it because I just think we are living probably in the worst cost of living crisis in a generation. How do I do this where I come alongside people and don't ask them questions which are stupid or prurient, but where we really want to learn? How do we come with humility and please other things that we are not seeing, that we don't understand, you know, that as church, we need to do better together as community. Um, and that's why I love the fact that people are speaking up. You know, people already have a voice. You know, they already have a voice. It's just, was anybody listening? Is anybody listening? That's a, that is a great question and sentence in itself. I just almost want to leave that hanging for as long as we can. People already have a voice. But the question is, is anybody listening to their voice? I almost don't want to rush on because I think that's a great place to almost just leave our conversation with a question. So wh when you give people their voices, um, what, yeah, where, would, where would you go from that question? So I think for churches or ministries that have got to that point, be really intentional about why you're asking the question. Don't be tokenistic. Don't be kind of like, oh, well, we talked to a few people and we're getting, you know, we're getting service users' voice and what have you. Well, Right. And so what? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do about it? Um, and therefore, you know, some of that means sharing power. I don't think we talk about power enough in the church and in um, kind of community things that we do, but power is there. So how do we share it? What does that look like? Um, and... And also, you know, kind of thinking and giving people room, making room for people. Um, you know, and I was, I was thinking earlier about how, um, you know, we have our systems and we have our processes and all of that. Um, but 
we we always need to, I think, kind of put people first. You fit your systems and your structures around people and not the other way around. And also every everybody has something to bring. So I just shared this little story from when I was growing up. So, you know, there were times when money was extremely tight for our family. And um, you know, I remember, yeah, just some pretty grim times with it. But there, one of my sisters um, has learning difficulties, my older sister, and, and I recall my first volunteering opportunity, and it was with my dad and my siblings. And um, over the summer, there was a project that would loan a minibus to local families that had children with disabilities. And over, I don't know, say six weeks or over the summer period, we would we would drive each other's children to this local project at the start and end of each day. Each family took a week. And when it was our turn, my dad, who had been a bus driver before he became a, a full-time carer to look after my sister, he would drive the minibus. And then me and my other siblings would take it in turns to be chaperones to help collect other children and get them on and off the minibus. And it was really great fun, <laughs> a bit scary and challenging, but we loved having use of the minibus for a week. And that experience showed me, I think, from a very early age, the power of volunteering. And that if you structure things in the right way, everybody can do something. Everybody can. I think the way that we have segmented things in society and you know it's wonderful that there's lots of ministries and it's wonderful that there's lots of charities but if we're not careful it's like we're going to do these things to you we're going to do these things for you rather than what can we do together because it dignifies the person it dignifies the gifts it dignifies the things that God I believe has placed in each person but we've forgotten to dignify each other. We've, or we're just not curious enough. We're not, you know, I, I love looking, you know, Lord, what's, what's the buried treasure that you put in people's lives? What's the talents? Where are the hidden talents? I think there are so many hidden talents in churches and communities. And if we would only seek them out, uh, it could be quite transformative. And certainly where I come across places where they have done that, you see something incredibly beautiful emerging. Mm, that's really good. I mean, a lot of it stems from that problem of thinking we know what we need because we're not talking to the right people. And so we think we need these types of people to do these types of jobs, which, you know, restricts a whole group of people who might not fit those categories or fit, fit what we think we need. Whereas actually, like any, I suppose any organisation is supposed to be reflective of the ultimate original organization of the family and the family is forever adapting and adjusting itself to the individual members of the family and what they're bringing to the home life and what the needs of the home are at any given season so i, I think every organization every church needs to learn from the family uh, in that sense of so who've we got here and what do they bring and how to you know how can we make best use of the different gifts and uh, histories that we've got here um well, Rosie, I'm very aware our time has, has run out, has raced on. I mean, so engrossed in everything you're saying. There's so many things we didn't get to talk about. We're going to have to, we're going to, have, to have another conversation, I'm afraid, in, <laughs> in, in time and learn all about your MA in African theology and even the, the activity that you're doing with Reconciled Church and Owen Hilton and, and that. Um, so you'll have to come back. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. Just as, we, just as we go, is there anything else on your heart or mind that you just want to share with us as we um, leave? So I think uh, one of the things that I'm learning and, uh, you know, kind of sitting on and mulling over actually is um, is prayer and just the, the power of prayer and how God is able to do imaginably more than we can ask or imagine. You know, there's that scripture. And I've, I've certainly been sitting with that over the last year and a bit. And so just as an encouragement for people who... You know, if you're waking up in the small hours of the morning and you ping a prayer out or, um, uh, you know, through the day, um, God hears it. Uh, I believe, you know, he will receive it. And 
and I kind of going back to kind of Psalm 27, just wait and see, wait and see what he will do with it and persevere. Don't give up with your prayer. Oh man. Well, it, it strikes me that so much of what Rosie shared with us and so much of what God's used her in, in the ministry of Beloved and Beyond, is really born out of the prayers that she's prayed. And Rosie strikes me as someone who's lived with her eyes open to the world around her, not just open in an awareness to the world around her, but receiving the world around her as an invitation from God to partner with him in putting things right. And the prayers that we pray are like seeds that go into the ground that over time get germinated or to use another metaphor that gestate in the world before giving birth to some of the ministries and the ideas and the things that God has been stirring in us for many many years. Well I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Rosie. Well links to things that we talked about, Jubilee Plus, the recent conference that she mentioned along with the Women Alive article that I referenced, all of that will be in the description to today's episode. With that it brings us to the close of our conversation and indeed to the podcasts of Life and Leadership in 2023. I look forward to bringing you more conversations to help you to thrive as a follower of Jesus. We're kicking off the new year with a conversation I had with Marcus Honeyset on the whole subject of spiritual harm and Christian leadership. So I look forward to sharing that with you in due time. Hope you have a restful Christmas and hope God speaks to you, blesses you, refreshes you. And I hope that his heart for the lost is imprinted upon you even more. God bless you and see you soon. Bye-bye.